series of, of even jokes about these, or use these kinds of expressions. So there are two types of people in this world, those who finish what they start. Okay, again, all right. Now, in the past years, we would use these expressions uh, among our pastoral staff. They, be, they became common, so it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't uncommon for Pastor David to say something like, there are two types of people in this world, those who play video games and those who look down on those who play video games. And other expressions that every year in December we would have to remind Pastor Curry, there are two types of people in this world, those who have rhythm and those... <laughs> those who don't. Uh, and even now, he attends a church that has a little more clapping during the music, and I think Sue even has to say to him, "Hun, don't embarrass us, all right? Just keep your hands to your, to your side. But we're familiar with these, these binary expressions that, that lump people into two categories. Sometimes they're humorous, sometimes they express a level of truth, but we're familiar with these expressions. Now, our passage this morning essentially lumps two people into, or people in this world into two categories. It makes a, a similar statement, placing humanity in, in one of two places. And these categories surround this idea of how does one respond to Jesus? Either they embrace him, they, they turn to him in, in repentance and faith, or they reject him and remain hardened in their unrepentance. But, but really, there are no, no other categories. These are the only two categories when it comes to relating to, to Jesus. There's no category for someone who's relatively indifferent. There's no category for someone who's an interested observer. These are the only two options. Either one accepts or rejects Jesus. Now, thankfully, we don't have to stay in in those categories. We can move from rejecting him to embracing him. But all men stand in one of these two categories. Now, unlike video games or possessing rhythm, accepting or rejecting Jesus is a matter of life and death. In other words, it's it's no big deal if if at the end of the day you don't have rhythm or, or can't uh, dance to, to music or anything like that, but it, but it matters immensely what you do with Jesus. And for this reason, our passage is, is so helpful because it gives us clarity about how one relates to Jesus. So we might say that there are two types of people in this world. There are those who accept Jesus and there are those who reject him. Now, In order to understand our passage this morning, we need to place it in its proper context. Okay, so our verses are verse 23 down through verse 46. And this places us early in the Passion Week. In verses 1 through 11 that we read in our scripture reading, we discussed the triumphal entry, where Jesus had just entered on a donkey into Jerusalem, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9. And this happened on Sunday of the Passion Week. So that's verses 1 through 11. In verses 12 through 17, this is, happens on Monday, Jesus cleanses the, the temple from the money changers, no doubt increasing the hatred of individuals against him. Then we move down to verses 18 to 22, where Jesus curses the fig tree, also happened on Monday. Okay? But now, we are in our story here, as we pick up in verse 23, it is likely now Tuesday. Okay? It's Tuesday of the Passion Week, and the controversy between Jesus 
and the religious leaders begins to intensify. Now, by the end of the week, it's going to intensify to the degree that they, that they actually crucify Jesus on the cross. But right now, the, the, the tension is just starting to heat up. Now, before we dive into our text here, allow me to give you a quick overview of, of the passage. Okay, so verse 23, we have the religious leaders questioning Jesus' authority. Jesus then answers their question with a question of his own, and they refuse to answer his question, so he is under no obligation to answer their question. But then the conversation goes on for Jesus then to share two parables and and really give a, a scathing rebuke aimed directly at the religious leaders. And he gives them this condemnation for their rejection of Jesus the Messiah. So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to look at at these three settings, really, there's this, there's this questioning of Jesus' authority that then moves into two parables that Jesus then rebukes them for questioning his authority. And it's helpful in this passage because it's here at this place and in these parables that Jesus places people in two categories. Those who embrace and those who reject Jesus. Those who embrace Jesus receive the right to enter into his coming kingdom. And those who reject Jesus secure their own judgment. So as we consider this passage this morning, what I want you to ask yourself is this question, in which category do I find myself? Am I of those who have changed my mind about Jesus and embraced him in repentance and faith? Or am I in the category of those who reject Jesus and do not embrace him in repentance and faith? So here's how I'll organize this passage this morning. First, we're going to address the question that, they, that the religious leaders ask Jesus. And then we're going to move to these two parables. And these two parables unfold like this. There's a parable, there's a point, and then there's a response. And both of them unfold like that. So let's begin with the question in verse 23. While Jesus is in the temple teaching, the religious leaders approach him and they ask him this question. So look again at verse 23. By what authority are you doing these things And who gave you this authority? Now, when they say, by what authority are you doing these things, they are not only referring to Jesus' teaching, but probably also the events of the previous day. When Jesus cleansed the temple, when he was healing the sick in verses 12 and verse 14. And we should note that the religious leaders, they possessed the the right to question those who were teaching in the temple. So this was... This was not outside their area of oversight as they asked Jesus this question. However, we know that their question was not sincere. They're trying to trap Jesus, and they haven't been able to do so to this point. Now, Jesus, knowing this, responds to their question with a question of his own. Okay, and he says, the baptism of John, this is in verse 25, the baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And Jesus wasn't attempting to stump them here. He's not asking them a question to which they don't know the answer. Rather, what he's doing is he is backing them into a corner. Because if they answer that the baptism of John is from heaven, well, then they have the answer to the question that they asked Jesus about by what authority does he do these things. Because if John's authority was from heaven, and John prepared the way for Jesus then they would naturally have to accept that Jesus' authority was from heaven as well. But they can't answer 
in, in that way. So they, they have another option. They could say, well, from earth. But if they say from earth, then they're, they know that the crowds believe that Jesus was a prophet, and they don't want to offend the crowds either. And so they answer, we don't know, which is a lie because they did know. They just didn't want to answer. So Jesus then feels no obligation to answer their question. Now, we would expect the conversation to end at this point, right? They challenge Jesus' authority. Jesus says, I'm not going to tell you unless you answer my question. And then it would seem like the question ends. But now Jesus goes on the offensive. And it's not just on the offensive in a minor way. Jesus goes strongly on the offensive. And he tells two parables. And these parables are, are so sharp that we almost feel uncomfortable for the religious leaders as we listen to the things Jesus says to them, okay? So, so this, this question and this challenge of Jesus' authority, it leads into two parables. Let's look at the first parable, and then we'll look at the point and the, and the response. The parable first in verse 28 through verse 32, the parable of the two sons. So Jesus begins verse 28, and he says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son... Go and work in the vineyard today. It reminds me of my dad who would say, son, don't forget, you have to mow the lawn today. And I would say, I would say, okay, I will, and then I would. And I'd be more like the second son. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Because he says, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. Now stop right there for a moment. And I want you to note two things about this exchange between this father and son. First, this response is meant to grab our attention. Okay, this isn't modern-day uh, America where children freely defy their parents all the time with no consequence, okay? That's not the setting we're in. This is, first, a, this is a first century Jewish home where such a response of a son saying, I'm not doing that, that would not be tolerated. Okay, this was an openly rebellious response to, to his father. And there's a reason why Jesus does this. In a minute... He is going to connect openly, the openly rebellious son to openly rebellious sinners of tax collectors and prostitutes. So when the son says, I'm not doing it, that is meant to grab our attention. The second thing I want you to notice about this response is that the son, after he said he would not, it says in verse 29 that he changed his mind. Now, the word literally means regret. And it's connected to the idea of repentance. And again, that's important because Jesus is going to connect this expression, change your mind, to later in this parable. So keep that, keep that in the forefront of your thinking. Now, the parable continues in verse 30. It says, and this is the father, and he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir but did not go. So here the son gives lip service to obedience, but he never follows through on the promise. Now let's move then to the point of the parable in verse 31. Jesus begins to drive home the point of this parable, and, and in doing so, what he does here is, is brilliant because he, he includes the religious leaders in the discussion, and he asks this question, which of the two did the will of his father? And they respond, the first. They, they, they understood the parable correctly. And so Jesus then drives home this point even more, and he says this. 
Truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Wow. This is a stunning and confrontational statement by Jesus. It is, a, it, is a, it is an extremely pointed rebuke of the religious leaders. I mean, you can, you can feel the tension in this moment. I mean, keep in mind, this conversation is not Jesus and the religious leaders. It's Jesus, the religious leaders, and the crowds that Jesus was teaching. And so these are the leaders, religious leaders of Israel, and Jesus rebukes the religious leaders in front of, in front of all these people who had come to listen to him teach. The leaders of Israel were being publicly chastised for not listening to John and by implication believing in Jesus. Now to understand this, the intensity of this rebuke, we need to know how first century Jews viewed tax collectors and prostitutes. Okay, tax collectors were were traitors and crooks in the eyes of the Jews because they were Jews who represented the Roman government and collected taxes from their own people. Often, often, required more than what was owed and and pocketed the extra money so they stole from their own people so in this sense they were viewed as the as the cultural scum prostitutes really need no explanation generally speaking our culture frowns on prostitution but but in this in this culture first century judaism they would have they would have strongly disagreed with with using one's body in this way so for jesus to say these openly rebellious and immoral people go into the kingdom before the religious leaders was an extremely offensive rebuke. When Jesus explains why in verse 32, and here's why, it's not because the prostitutes and the the tax collectors were, were more godly, but he says in verse 32, here's why. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Okay, so when John came and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, there were many prostitutes and tax collectors that, that, that believed his message. And they changed their mind and they changed their ways and they, they, they turned in belief in the coming king. But the religious leaders, they were like the second son. They gave lip service to following God, but when they heard the message, they did not follow it and demonstrate the fruits of the kingdom. Okay, so this leads us then to the, to the response of the religious leaders. Notice what he says at the end of verse 32. He says, And when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe. In other words, their failure was that they didn't repent and believe. They didn't change their minds like sinners, like tax collectors and prostitutes, but rather they were like the second brother. Well, here we see clearly, okay, once you notice this, that entrance into the kingdom of God is not based on how morally upright a person is. Okay, but it's, it's based on how one responds to the king. The prostitutes and tax collectors They were not inherently morally upright people. But when they learned of the coming king, well, they changed their mind and they believed in him, thus securing entrance into the coming kingdom. 
By contrast, the religious leaders, they were, they were more upstanding individuals. I mean, they weren't selling themselves for sex, and they weren't stealing money from their own people. So by comparison, they were, they were much better people. But they failed because they did not embrace Jesus when he came. That's, that's Jesus' rebuke. You did not change your minds and believe in him. Now, at the end of this parable, we're meant to sort of ask ourselves this, this question, which son am I? Which son am I? Am I the son who was initially a sinner and rebellious against God, but then later changed my mind to grant entr- be granted entrance into the kingdom? Or are we the son who, yeah, maybe we're morally upright, but we think we have no need for Jesus, so we don't change our mind and respond to repentance and faith to the king. Well, this brings us to the second parable. As if the first parable was not intense enough, Jesus now turns up the heat, making the religious leaders sorry that they ever asked and challenged Jesus' authority. So notice the second parable in verses 33 through 39. Read it with me again. It says, Here another parable, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, they threw him out of the vineyard, and they killed him. Okay, so this is the second parable that Jesus tells, even more pointed than the first. Jesus tells of a master who built a vineyard and took great pains to make sure that the vineyard was working properly. Okay, he planted it. He put a fence around it to protect it from animals. He dug a wine press to squeeze the grapes right there on site. He builds a tower to watch out for for fire and for thieves, and then he leases it to tenants to manage with the expectation that it's going to produce fruit and he's going to come collect his fruit at a later time. Okay? When harvest comes, then, the master sent his servants to, or his servant to to collect the fruit. But something unexpected happens, does it not? The response of the wicked tenants is to stone, beat, and kill all of the messengers that have come, or all the servants that have come to collect the fruit. Servant after servant, this was the same response. So finally, the master says, well, they'll respect my son. Or he is anticipating or hoping that they will respect my son, so he sends him. But these consistently callous tenants throw the son out of the vineyard, and they kill him as well. Now, the imagery in this parable is not complicated. Okay? The master of the vineyard is God. The vineyard is Israel. The wicked tenants represent the religious leaders of Israel. And the servants who, who came to collect the fruit most likely represent the prophets that have come throughout Israel's history. But they, the people of Israel rejected the prophets, prophet after prophet, not following the Lord in obedience. And then the son who comes, the son of the master, is obviously Jesus who, who comes as the, as the coming king. 
Now, some parables are, are meant to conceal truth, but this parable is quite clear in terms of its meaning. So at the conclusion of the parable, Jesus, again, includes the religious leaders in the discussion. Look at verse 40. It says, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? So he, he asks the religious leaders, okay, you give me the answer. You engage in the story. And in answering the question, notice what they do. They predict their own condemnation. Right? Because in verse 41 they say this, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And you almost wonder if Jesus didn't pause after, this, after, they, after they answer this question. Right? So Jesus asked the question, so what's the owner of the vineyard going to do? And they say, well, he's going to put those miserable wretches to death. And Jesus stands there, essentially. There's your answer. They have just predicted their own condemnation because killing Jesus was their goal and what was on their mind. It would only be a few days before they are the fulfillment of this prediction made in this parable. Well, that brings us then to verses 42 and 44. We see the point of Jesus' parable. Jesus goes into some explanation here. Read again with me verses 42 and 44 through 44. So Jesus says then, right, right after they say that he's going to put these wretches to a miserable death, Jesus says this. Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So in responding to these religious leaders, Jesus takes them to a familiar Old Testament concept of a stone in verse 42. It's a stone that the builders rejected that becomes the, the chief cornerstone. Now, the, the concept appears throughout the Old Testament in, in other sort of stone passages of like Isaiah 8 and, and Isaiah 28. And, and now this is a quote here from Psalm, 18, or Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. So what a cornerstone was, was, or likely this is the case, that it was a foundational stone that stood at the corner and support of, of two walls coming together. And, and it was strong enough and secure enough that it, that it, 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 it allowed for a secure foundation for the, for the building structure. Okay? Now in this case, and in this scriptural metaphor, the builders initially look at this stone, they're not impressed by it, <coughs> excuse me, they're not impressed by it, and so they reject it as the, as the cornerstone. But in this biblical metaphor, the, builders that the, the stone that the builders rejected, it becomes the, the chief cornerstone holding the whole structure in place. And Jesus uses this analogy to rebuke the religious leaders. That when they saw Jesus coming, they were like builders who said, yeah, we're not impressed. This guy can do nothing for us. This is not how the king of Israel would, would, would come. So lowly and humble and, 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 and pathetic. And just like these builders, they rejected this stone as useless. But in God's plan, as he says here in verse 42, 
This Jesus was the chief cornerstone. And Jesus rebukes them in verse 42. He says this, Have you never read? Like you should have known that I was the cornerstone when I came, but you were blind and hard-hearted against the Messiah. Now notice that this then comes with a consequence in verse 43. We have in verse 43, it says, Therefore, Jesus says, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So they were the religious leaders, the caretakers of the vineyard. They had the responsibility of directing people toward Messiah. And now Jesus says, you will not see the kingdom. Or in the words of verse 41, here's what Jesus is really saying. He will put those wretches to a miserable death. Instead of seeing the kingdom, they will see condemnation. Now, what does verse 43 mean when it says the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits? There are different different perspectives on this passage, and it's an important passage for discussing the future of, of, of this kingdom that, that was promised. Uh, some people see this as an indication that the kingdom and the blessings of the kingdom are taken from Israel and then later given to, to the church. And that's a possible view because uh, even in, in 1 Peter 2, 9, it says that, the, referring to the church there probably, that, that they are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Okay? But, but while the church shares in the blessings of the kingdom, I think it's better to take this, the words of Jesus here as not meaning that he's taking the kingdom from, from Israel and he's going to give it to another group, the, the church. Rather, I think what Jesus is saying here is he's taking it from this generation of Israel and he's going to give it to a later believing generation of Israel. The reason I say this is because in the Old Testament, the promise of the kingdom is deeply rooted in, in Israel and in the covenants that God made with, with Israel. Okay? And so if Messiah is promised to sit on the throne of David and rule over the, the, the nation of Israel, it would be a drastic change for the kingdom to go from Israel to the church. And it would seem contradictory to what God had promised in the, in the Old Testament. In fact, even as if you were to turn back to Matthew chapter 19, just a, just a page or two, even in Matthew chapter 19, just prior to this, Jesus is still talking about a kingdom ruling over Israel. Notice what he says in verse 28, oh, really verse 27, he says, Peter says to him in reply, this is the rich young ruler passage, and he says, he says to Jesus, see, we have left everything and we followed you, what then will, will we have? And in this passage, usually when Peter asks that question, you're expecting a rebuke. But Jesus acknowledges Peter's question as a legitimate one. And Jesus says to Peter, Truly I say to you, in the new world, and he says this, When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, which I take that to be the throne of David in a, in a literal kingdom, he says, You who have followed me will sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So even just prior to this, Jesus is still thinking of a kingdom that is going to, to rule over the, the coming nation of, of Israel. Okay, so that's why I think verse, in chapter 21, when he says the kingdom's going to be taken from, 
from you and given to another nation, I think it's going to, that's why I think it's another nation of believing Israelites, not removing the kingdom from Israel as a whole. But in either case, the point of the parable is clear. These religious leaders, they're not going to see the kingdom, okay, because they rejected the king, they stumbled over the cornerstone, and they will fall to pieces. All right, so now notice the response in verses 45 and 46. It says this, When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, now notice there the word parables is plural. So when they heard his parable of the two sons, and when they heard the parable of the wicked tenants, it says this, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Okay, well, we already knew that. And you guys seem a little bit slow here, okay? But, but they, they got it. They realized, he's talking about us. We're the wicked tenants. We're the son who initially says we will, but doesn't follow through on our responsibilities. And then verse 46 says, And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now, this is a sad but ironic ending to this encounter. Because as they realize that Jesus is talking about them, they have the, the opportunity and the time to repent. Like, they haven't killed Jesus yet. There's, there's still time for them to change their mind. And, and if anything, we should sit here and be like, come on, guys, sober up. Okay, change your minds. But instead, all they do is they fulfill the prediction in this parable. And they end up saying, okay, he's talking about us. Yep, that's us. This is what we're going to do. So it's ironic because they don't change their minds as they should. They're not like the first son. Instead, they move forward in continuous rebellion against Jesus. And it's just a matter of days before they kill him. In fact, they would have done it then, but they feared the crowds. Well, eventually, as Matthew rolls along and Jesus gets into more tuffles with, with the religious leaders, they, they eventually say, okay, we, we've had enough. Regardless of what the people say, we've, we've got to get rid of Jesus. And so by the end of the week, they execute him on the cross. Okay. So what are we to learn then from this, from this passage of the religious leaders questioning his authority, and then the parable of the two sons and the parable of the wicked tenants. Well, I think what we see here is that there are two types of people in this world. There are those who accept Jesus, and there are those who reject Jesus. We all begin in this category of rejecting Jesus. In, in that sense, we're like the firstborn son. When we're asked to, to do our responsibilities, we're like, but not the first one, so on the first son, Jesus, that the parable references. When we're asked to do our responsibilities, we say, no, we will not. We'll do things our own way. We come into this world as sinners, following the course of this world, doing our own thing, and our initial response is to reject God's will for us. And the consequence of that sin, whether we like it or not, is, is eternal condemnation. Because God is a just God. He cannot merely sweep sin under the rug. In His justice, all sin must be punished. 
But the good news is this is the purpose for which Jesus came. The religious leaders didn't know it, that their crucifying of of Jesus would be according to God's plan, where Jesus would die on the cross, and in dying on the cross, he would die and suffer the penalty that you and I deserved for our sins. He would die the sacrificial death that, that we deserve to die, but he didn't stay dead. He was raised from the dead three days later, conquering sin and the grave. Now we realize that he will soon be coming again to establish the kingdom to a later group that he initially promised there in in, in verse 43. He's coming again when he's going to punish all unrighteousness and he's going to establish his kingdom for those who have changed their mind and believed in him. And here's the good news. You have not missed the opportunity to become a citizen of the coming kingdom. Okay? You're not in a position where it's too late or you've already committed an unpardonable sin and hope for you is lost. But if you're here today underneath the preaching of this word, you have the opportunity to become a citizen of the coming kingdom. Well, you ask, well, how do we do this? Well, I think the parable of the two sons is helpful. You have to change your mind. You have to change your mind about Jesus. You can no longer follow sin and reject Jesus and go about things your own way, but you have to change your mind and believe that Jesus is the one who has come to provide salvation. Now you might think, well, this is like a really interesting story, because it is a really interesting story, but you might think, well, I'm just not sure if I'm interested. Well, friend, You cannot afford to be disinterested in this story because of the alternative. You do not want to be one of the the wretches that that face a, a miserable death because you failed to recognize Jesus as king. We should learn from the responses in this passage. In this sense, we want to be like the tax collectors and the prostitutes not because of their sin, but because of their response in changing their minds. We do not want to be like the religious leaders who even when they heard the truth, rejected it and continued in their hard-heartedness. So friend, in which category do you find yourself today? Are you among those who reject Jesus or are you among those who accept him? And if you're among those who reject him, Well, today is the day to change your mind and turn to him. Let us learn from the words of this passage. Let's pray. Father, we're blessed to consider this story this morning. And it, for those of us who are believers, it informs us of what we used to be, and it informs us of where much of the world stands today in rejection of your son. And it reminds us of the urgency of our responsibility that we need to be spreading the good news about the coming kingdom. That you are you're sending your son to return to establish his kingdom, and only those who have changed their mind and believe in you will be part of it. So, Lord, you've given us this message. Let us be faithful to proclaim it. And for those here, Lord, who have not embraced you and who have not put their faith and trust in you and are not citizens of a coming kingdom, Well, Lord, we would ask that 
he would change their posture toward you this morning. They would be softened and sobered by what they see in this passage and repent and believe in your son. We ask you, Lord, to use these words as we go our separate ways.